Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that your hand controls history and that you are working out your plan and purposes. And every time we see things explode in the Middle East, there's always uh, people's minds go to prophecy and to uh, Armageddon and all of these other things that are related to the word. But, Father, we know that you are working things in such a way to bring about the uh, same kind of scenario worldwide that we had when our Lord Jesus Christ came the first time, and that is stated in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time that our Savior came. And, Father, we're thankful that that uh, we know you're in control, working things together for good, and we pray that as believers we can stand back somewhat dispassionately and objectively and watch the scenario as the cosmic system increases its chaos and disorder and as evil increases while we are frustrated because that is not the ideal circumstance in which we wish to live. But nevertheless, this is where we find ourselves, and we pray that we might be faithful witnesses and that we might stand firm and realize that we have a tremendous opportunity to to be a witness and to, uh, rather than run around despondent and despairing over the circumstances, we can have a hope and a confidence, even though we at the same time may not like what's going on, we can have a hope and a confidence and an objectivity and optimism that can be a real attraction to people who feel somewhat despondent, the negative trajectory of our culture. Father, we pray that you might strengthen and encourage us from our study of your word this evening. And Father, we continue to pray for Israel, pray for wisdom on the part of their leaders and on the part of... Uh, uh, the leadership in the United States to support them, and that as they face enemies surrounding them, enemies in these various Arab countries, as well as Gaza and uh, problems that are going on even in, in uh, Jordan, we pray that your your hand would give them wisdom in the decisions that they make re- regarding these threats. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This afternoon, I had a little bit of a thrill this morning going through some uh, papers and different things. I'm unpacking or packing all this stuff at my dad's house to to move out. And I found a small box that had about four small silver spoons in it. Now, I've seen this box once or twice before in the last couple of weeks, and I turned it over. I had not seen that there was a note on the bottom written by my grandmother 
who said that this had belonged to her grandmother in 1863. Her grandmother was married to a man named Thomas Henry Stout Sr., who pastored like 10 or 11 Baptist churches in Alabama and Georgia, I found out, and including a chaplain in the Confederacy. So that was... Uh, and then I think one of these uh, old pictures I have, it's a linotype or daguerreotype or something like that. Uh, it's got a lot of silver content in it or something. It's hard to see some of them. But I think one of those is him. And so that's just kind of interesting to trace out some of those some of those things. I think there are two or three other pastors in the family tree somewhere hiding behind the leaves. All right, we're in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 now. We've taken a little bit of a of a sidetrack over the last several lessons to look at passages in other Pauline letters that reinforce what he's saying here, talking about the focus of the law. What is the relationship of the law to the Christian life? And this is historically a major problem among uh, among Christians ever since Acts chapter uh, 10 and 11 when uh, Peter first took the gospel to the Gentiles and he came back to Jerusalem in chapter 11, told them what had happened, and they're having great concerns about what relation the law has now to these new Gentile Christians. Are they going to be coming under the law or just exactly what is their responsibility? And in, in our study on Tuesday night in Acts, we will come to uh, Acts chapter 15, which is the called the Jerusalem Council, where they hammer some issues out in relation to that, which is an important chapter. And also the book of Galatians reflects this same issue, but it's been a problem ever since then, all the way up to the present, is that we have a large number of Christians who don't understand the role of the Mosaic law in and of itself, in an absolute sense, number one. And number two, they don't understand the relationship of the law to the present church age. There's a failure to understand what what Paul has emphasized back in uh, chapter 6, verse 14, that we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And the significance of that statement that we are under grace and the law and the relationship of believers to the law, which includes understanding its purpose in the Old Testament, no longer exists. Spirituality is not related to uh, morality. Uh, that doesn't mean that spirituality is immoral. What it means is that we don't achieve a state of spirituality or spiritual maturity by following a moral or ethical system. That's what the Mosaic Law did. The Mosaic Law laid out an ethical, moral system based on the holiness, the righteousness of God, but it didn't enable, as we've seen the last few weeks, didn't enable the believers to uh, to fulfill the law, to obey the law. And so it created sort of a tension that was there showing that man on his own, apart from some sort of internal divine change, man can't do, cannot meet the divine requirements. So spirituality and spiritual growth are not based on just following moral dictates. That's not going to do it. It's going to lead to the kind of frustration that it leads Paul to in this particular chapter. So what we see in Romans 7, starting in verse 8, is the explanation that the law reveals the sinfulness of the sin nature, 
And the sin nature is the cause of spiritual death. And if you understand that, then you understand this chapter. It's pointing out that that the law isn't sin, though it produces sin, because as we all know, whenever you tell somebody, don't do that, one of the first things they're going to want to do, it never occurred to them before to do it, but now they want to do it. So the law, through its prohibitions, uh, makes certain things clear that you're not supposed to do, and in a sense it exacerbates or it sort of uh, energizes the sin nature uh, to do those very things. But the sin comes from the sin nature. The sin doesn't come because the law says thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not have not have any other gods besides me. That's not the cause of sin. The cause of sin is the internal sin nature and the volition of each individual uh, believer. They make that choice no matter what the circumstances might be, no matter what the uh, pressures might be, no matter what the education issues might be. The problem is always the response of the individual in their volition. So the law exposes or reveals the sinfulness of the sin nature, and it's the sin nature that's the cause of spiritual death and living a death-like experience that is even for believers. So as we come out of the introductory section here, Paul concluded in verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, and that indicates a complete release from the law, having died to what we were held by. So death, as it often does in Scripture, emphasizes not the cessation of existence, but it emphasizes a separation. So we've died to the law, that is, that's what uh, held us, so that we're separated from the law. The law no longer has authority. Having died to what we were held by, so that, for the purpose, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Even though there was service in the Old Testament, as we've seen, they couldn't serve because internally there's no change. There's regeneration, as we might put it, regeneration 1.0 in the Old Testament. Regeneration 1.0 in the Old Testament meant that you moved from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You went from not having a, a, a human spirit to having a human spirit. But that's the most that you got with regeneration. It didn't have all of the other features that regeneration ha- will have in the, in the church age or in the millennial kingdom. So we have regeneration 1.0 in the Old Testament, which is just your basic core concept of moving from spiritual death to spiritual life, gaining a human spirit, which gives the individual believer a certain ability to understand uh, divine truth because the natural man cannot understand the things uh, revealed by the Spirit of God. That revelation would be within the Word according to Second, uh, or 1 Corinthians 2.14. So we have this um, a basic regeneration of the Old Testament There's no death to the sin nature. There's no uh, breaking of the power of the sin nature. All of that is part of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that just isn't there in the Old Testament. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we get Regeneration 2.0. Regeneration 2.0 
includes as uh, as uh, ancillary uh, features the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It includes um, a, uh, a the, identi- the baptism of the Holy Spirit is related to it and the freedom from the sin nature because of the identification with uh, Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. All of that becomes sort of a secondary features uh, that come with regeneration. Now, in, because the Holy Spirit leaves the earth, the indwelling of the church during the tribulation period, that we, in the tribulation period they sort of will go back to a regeneration 1.5. There's a bit of a regression there because there's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's no filling of the Holy Spirit, and so it's going to be a different spiritual life in that period of time leading up to the return of Christ. And then when Christ comes and establishes the kingdom, the spiritual, the spiritual life is really going to take this huge shift, huge change from what the, the saved Jews in the tribulation period experience. It's very similar to the limited regeneration of the Old Testament of their ancestors. And then when Christ comes and establishes the new covenant, which we've looked at the last few weeks, this is going to bring with it features that go far beyond the uh, spiritual features of Regeneration 2.0 in the church age. It's going to bring in uh, a, a, a complete change of heart, uh, an intuitive knowledge of the word and of doctrine. It's going to give them a completely new interior uh, spiritual life that is based on uh, this more of a direct uh, direct knowledge of God than the indirect knowledge of God that we have today. So there's a lot of different features that come along in the millennial kingdom. So it's not simply regeneration that makes that difference. Basic regeneration is simply moving from spiritual life to spiritual death. Each dispensation has different features related to uh, God the Holy Spirit. So as I pointed out in the last study, the newness of the Spirit emphasizes that this is the new life that comes in in this church age. And it is also connected back to verse 4 of chapter 6 and, and the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit where Paul writes, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. So connecting those two statements related to newness, we see this is the purpose for which church-age believers are saved, is to walk or to live or to manifest their life in terms of this new spiritual dimension by walking by the Spirit using the language from uh, Galatians. So in... In this next section we get into, in verses 7 down through 12, there's uh, the question is asked in verse 7, is the law sin? Is the law sinful? Uh, what shall we say then, Paul says, as he opens the verse, is the law sin? And then he's going to answer it in the, verses, the second half of 7 down through 12, and his answer is that no, it is holy, that is, it is set apart, it is righteous, 
as he says in verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just, or we could say righteous, it's the same word, and good. It is intrinsically good. So there's nothing wrong with the law. It is inherently righteous, but it doesn't, the limit on the law was it didn't change the internal makeup of the individual. So we come to the first verse. And Paul says, what then shall we say? Notice he's using a first-person plural, asking the question, uh, we, as he has done throughout uh, the previous uh, previous chapter. He switches back and forth with a lot of different pronouns. In chapter 6, verse 1, notice he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He goes on in verse 2 of chapter 6. Certainly not how shall we who died to sin live any any longer in it. And then verse 3, he shifts from that we, the first person plural, to a second person plural. Do you not know that as many of us, first person plural again, as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? And throughout chapter 6, he continues to talk in terms of uh, mostly first-person plural, we, but something uh, changes in this particular verse. He says in verse 7, he says, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, when he begins to give his answer, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so suddenly he shifts from a first-person plural to a first-person singular. So this has created a lot of tension over the years because this has been interpreted a variety of different ways. There are some that think that he is speaking in a uh, sort of as 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 a... representative of the human race using a first person plural i mean first person singular to speak of himself in sort of a uh, 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 as a type of the whole or a representative of the whole human race there are others that think that he's uh, using this in uh, some sort of a generic sense in in uh, as it speaks of uh, of it may be adam or as a jew represent in a representative sense but when Paul talks elsewhere in Romans, talking about, uses the first person singular, he's always talking about himself. He does this in, I think it's in Romans fifteen fourteen. He's always talking about himself. He never uses that first person singular in some sort of a representative or referential way. He does it in only in terms of himself. So he's talking most likely about about himself. Now, some people say, well, no uh, Orthodox Jew would ever make the statement that I would uh, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. They would. Uh, that's just not something that they would uh, do. That they were would never make statements that they were without the law. Uh, that never would have happened. But that's a limited uh, response. It really doesn't satisfy the problems or the usage of the uh, pronoun, as Paul does it throughout this particular section. So he asks the rhetorical question, uh, what shall we say, is the law sin? And, and believe me, I have had conversations with believers who have said that, that you look at the Mosaic Law, it's just terrible. But the Mosaic law in and of itself is righteous. It's 
how it's abused and distorted, for example, by the legalists in the old, in the, uh, during the New Testament period, the Pharisees, uh, that make it, that made it the source of evil during the, uh, during the first century. So Paul says, uh, very strongly rejects that whole idea, saying, may it never be. On the contrary, now he makes his point, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And then he is going to offer an explanation, and he says, for, this is the reason that I would not have come to know sin, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, the the English uses just the word no, but the Greek uses two different words for no, and it uses them in different grammatical senses, which I th- brings out a very subtle point. In the first statement, he's saying, I would not have come to know. This is a simple aorist tense, which is just understood as a simple past action, but it uses the verb, the Greek verb, gnosko, which has the idea of coming to learn something uh, through the through a normal process of, uh, of of learning and growth and acquisition of knowledge. So he's saying, I would not have come to know sin. So he's recognizing the fact that that as we develop in our knowledge of any doctrine of any idea, it is a process. And he says, I didn't come to know. There was a t- which implies there was a time he didn't know what sin was. He said, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, this reveals one of the first purposes for the law. It is to teach us what sin is. And it does this through all of the different um, regulations that <clears throat> emphasize what makes a person ritually unclean. Becoming ritually unclean is not the result of committing a sin. There are certain things that a person can do or that happens over the course of life that would make you ritually unclean. If you were to come in contact with a dead body, then you're ritually unclean. We learned a little bit about that in our study in Acts on on Tuesday nights with Simon the Tanner. Uh, Simon the Tanner would come into contact with animal carcasses as he skinned them and as he treated the hides every day, and he would be ritually unclean until sundown. And at sundown, then that ritual uncleanness ended. But handling animal skins and tanning them certainly is is not a sin. But it is, it's dealing with the whole issue of death. Death is the result of sin. And so the, all of these things that rendered a person ceremonial, ceremonially unclean were because they engaged or were involved in some activity that was related to some of the judgments and curses outlined in Genesis chapter 3. So if you read through Leviticus, it just seems like whatever you do, you whatever you can go so many places and, and be involved in so many activities that, that make you unclean. And the point is that sin is pervasive. Sin influences everything in our life. Uh, we constantly sin, and we're not aware of it. We have little mental attitude sins. We're arrogant. We're angry. We're resentful. We're bitter. Uh, we're jealous. We have various lustful thoughts. All kinds of things go on all day long, and they may be just momentary. They may last three or four seconds, but all of these sins take us out of fellowship. 
and there has to be cleansing. So we need to keep short accounts through First John, First uh, John one nine. And the way we so what Paul is saying is how he came to learn about sin was through this teaching method in the Mosaic law through the prohibitions and uh, the various commands in the Mosaic law. And then he explains it by giving a particular example. And that's why he shifts the verb, the, the, the specific knowledge verb to oida, and why he changes the tense. He says, for I would not have known. Now, he changes the tense to oida because it's, uh, it's something you've, you've learned, something you know. And the pluperfect tense emphasizes uh, something that is, is completed, but the results continue. So he's talking about the fact that he learned it at a point in time in the past, and he continues to understand the principle. That's the difference between the two verbs. So he says, for I would not have known. I learned this in the past, and this is, and he's, and, and by shifting the verb, he's emphasizing the importance of this one example. He says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, the reason he uses this example is because if you go through the other, uh, the nine commandments in the, in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, if you go through those ten, then what you discover is that, that all of the others are overt sins of some kind. Idolatry, murder, disrespect for parents, adultery, uh, thievery, things of this nature. But the last sin is the one you can't hide from, and that's coveting. It's a mental attitude sin, and everybody covets something in one way or another. It's the manifestation of the lust patterns in the, in the sin nature. And so Paul hones, zeroes in on this particular commandment because he, he could rationalize the other nine. Well, I've never been an idolater. I've never been an adulterer. I've, I haven't given false witness. I haven't uh, stolen anything. I've never committed murder. I am righteous. But then when it comes to a mental attitude sin, and this is the real problem, and every time you deal with, with so many different uh, legalists, and right now, when all the stuff in the news about evangelicals, there's a lot of stuff about the Christian right and why a lot of evangelicals didn't show up to vote. As I start listening to a lot of these reports, sooner or later you start discovering that there's a lot of legalism and legalistic ideas about the Christian life that are buried in a lot of these different mentalities in the evangelical church. And it's, it's, it's um, in the evangelical church today... And in a broader sense, conservative thinking today, you have a situation very similar to what was going on in the first century. In the original 60s, you had the rebelliousness of the 60s, not the 1960s, but the first 60s. You had rebelliousness against authority. And among the conservatives in in Israel, you had many different parties. The Zealots were one of the most widely known, but there were many. They'd fragmented, and that's what arrogance always does. And see, arrogance is a hidden mental attitude sin. And everybody starts thinking, I'm right on these nine points. You're different from me on that tenth point, so I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And then you would find somebody else, another group, and they're emphasizing seven other things. And because you don't agree with me on all ten, you're out, you're wrong. And they begin to fight each other. 
literally, not metaphorically, not argumentatively. They literally fought each other during the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, Jewish uh, zealous zealot groups were literally killing each other while they were killing the Romans. We're seeing something similar to that today. We're seeing a lot of uh, conservatives fragmenting, and and this is a trend. It may improve a little bit in the next few years, and it may get worse after that. I'm not saying this is the an absolute end. I'm not a prophet, but it's the kind of thing that, characteri- that is characteristic of, of carnality. We emphasize certain overt sins as the worst thing, and we don't deal with the problem of a lack of humility, a lack of arrogance, a lack of dependence upon God. And that's fundamental to living the Christian life. Arrogance is tenacious, number one. And number two, arrogance is always camouflages itself. Now, we have to pay attention to that second rule. I've never emphasized that before, but arrogance camouflages itself. We get into forms of self-justification and self-deception. That's what camouflaging is. It's self-deception. We convince ourselves we're not arrogant while we are being extremely arrogant. And that's and that produces uh, very divisive consequences. You can't love and be arrogant. They're mutually exclusive. And I think this is one of the things that Paul's emphasizing in Galatians 5, uh, 19, 20, 21, when he gives the works of the flesh, because among those works of the flesh, there's an emphasis on factions and being argumentative and divisive and fighting with one another, all of these things. And, and in the context, Paul is commanded that we as Christians are to uh, love our neighbors ourselves. And the key to doing that comes two verses later when he says that we're to walk by means of the Spirit and we won't fulfill the lust, the drive of the sin nature. And then he talks about the spirit wars against the flesh, the sin nature, the sin nature wars against the spirit. And then he gives evidences of sin nature control. And he lists 13 or 14 different sins there. Several of them relate to this kind of uh, divisiveness and factions and that kind of thing. That's the result of the sin nature being in control. So whenever you look at any group, and they're backbiting, and they're fighting each other, and they're schismatic and all of this, it's because arrogance is underneath all of that. There's no humility. They're, they're, they're fighting because they're just filled with arrogance. Everybody thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong, and there's no uh, compromise on any, um, any issues that are not, uh, not the primary issues. And this happens in lots of different areas. It's happened in... Christianity and evangelical Christianity in the last 40 years. In fact, when I was in seminary, and in seminaries you study systematic theology, you discover, you, you study all these various positions in historical theology, you study how they, these different theological positions have developed uh, historically. And I would say, I don't know how to quantify this, this is just sort of a guess in terms of numbers, but if there were a hundred different theological positions in 1975, held by evangelicals, there are 10,000 different positions today. 
And it's be, they're, they're people holding views that nobody ever heard of 40 years ago or nobody ever talked about 40 years ago. 40 years ago, post-millennialism was dead. Now post-millennialism is alive, and it's fragmenting itself in a hundred different ways. And it's all because of arrogance. We, we are emphasizing that we have the answer and everybody else is wrong. In America, we've seen this historically over the last 200 years with the uh, development of numerous different denominations. Most of the Protestant denominations in the world uh, came out of, uh, of America. Now, they had their, the major ones had their roots in, in Europe, but in the United States, they split all kinds of different ways. And now they're splitting again, but now they've got a new wrinkle to it. They became non-denominational so that every church becomes its own denomination, basically. Every church becomes its own theological faction that, because of some nuance, is better than all these other churches. And that just leads to more and more fragmentation, and it's just this uh, imploding that's taking place uh, because there's a lack of real humility toward God among believers, and it's impacted uh, it's, I think it's impacted by the culture, and it, again, impacts the culture. So the aspect of mental attitude sin is foundational for understanding, understanding sin. This is why it's so some, uh, silly and superficial when people start worrying about, well, can I do something to lose my salvation? Because it, it, it really renders mental attitude sin somewhat superficial. It focuses on some sort of external sin and, you know, these external sins. But even the most minute mental attitude sin is as disruptive to your relationship to God as the most uh, socially unacceptable overt sin. And yet we want to focus on these five or six really bad sins just because of their their nature, and uh, rather than looking at the divisive, very small uh, mental attitude sins. So Paul says it's that commandment that exposes mental attitude lust that made him realize that the law, by following the law, he could never he could he could never achieve what the righteousness of the law demanded, mostly because he he would get uh, proud, arrogant every time he would think about how successfully he was obeying the law. He was coveting that approbation by his ver- the, as the very motivation for obeying the law, and this just exposed his complete inability to ever achieve uh, any kind of righteousness. So. As we look at um, what Paul says in these first 12 verses, in answering the question about the law, he says, is the law sin? No, the law is just, holy, and spiritual. Verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. And verse 14 states, for we know that the law is spiritual. Now this points out another aspect because... In the debate over, there's a second debate that comes into issue here, and that is whether or not Paul is speaking in verses 13 to 25 as an unbeliever, his pre-salvation state, or whether he's speaking as a believer. Now, there are theological uh, partners that go with this. If you, if you take a position that he's an unbeliever, 
that's a position that is more consistent with a lordship salvation position. Now, lordship salvation position says basically if you're truly regenerate, then you're not going to commit certain sins, or if you do, it won't last very long. And it does. They, they don't understand the sinfulness of sin. Now, they'll talk a lot about that, but they really have a problem when it comes to people who commit certain kinds of sins. As to, they'll always say, well, I always thought that person was saved, but if they were saved, how could they do X, whatever it is? And it's the fact that they don't understand um, that, that the sin nature is still a problem. And so when they look at all of this struggle that Paul talks about in verses 13 to 25, is wrestling with sin, they say, well, if he were saved, he wouldn't have that, that degree of, of wrestling with sin. But if he w- weren't saved, he wouldn't talk, understand the, 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 these, this aspect of the law as spiritual. He wouldn't have the, the, the struggle with sin because if you're, if you're not saved, you're spiritually dead, and the only thing that you do is get led around by the sin nature. So he emphasizes this quality of the law. It's just, holy, and spiritual. Second thing he points out is the law reveals and illuminates sin. It exposes sin so that we understand what is uh, what our fallen condition is. Earlier, in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul talked about the fact that the law uh, provoked sin. In 5.20, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. When someone comes along and says, Now, I don't want you to do that, then what you're going to start thinking about doing it. So the law just sort of exacerbates the problem. It was already there, but it now it's surfacing. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says the law, when it's used lawfully, is good. So, and also in the Old Testament, in several passages, a couple of different verses in, the, in Psalm 119, talks about the fact that the one who follows the law, who has wisdom from the law, uh, is, uh, has life. The law is what gives, uh, what is what gives life. So, the question then is, what is the role of the law in relation to sin? So uh, Christianity has historically been confused about this. I want to go over a couple of points. That the law here in this whole passage is not talking about a generic law or generic principles. It refers specifically to the Mosaic law. The word namas, which is the Greek word for law, is used approximately 195 times in the, in the New Testament, and 180 of those refer to the Mosaic law. Interestingly, if you skip down to um, the last three or four verses in, in uh, this chapter, we see a couple of, um, of examples where law is used, and it's not the Mosaic law. In verse 21, Paul says, I find then, when, when he discovers sin dwelling in him, he says, I find then a law that evil is present within me. Now, that's not the Mosaic law. The next verse, he says, for I delight in the law of God. That's the Mosaic law, according to the inward man. 
But I see another law, that's a different law, in my members, warring against the law of my mind. See, that's not the Mosaic law. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Uh, I, and he's, verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. That's the Mosaic law. But with the flesh, the law of sin. So you see he, in several places, he uses the word namas, and it's not related to the Mosaic law, but most places uh, it is. So law refers to the, <clears throat> primarily to the Mosaic laws it does in the first part of this chapter. Second thing, to understand the Mosaic law, we have to understand the basic concept of a covenant. The Mosaic law was part of a covenant, or defines a covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. It was a temporary covenant, but a covenant is something like a contract between one party and another party. In this case, it's between God and Israel. It clearly defines who the parties to the covenant are. If you have a, um, if you have a house, if you own a house, you have a mortgage contract. That mortgage is between you and the mortgage company. If you are leasing a place, then that lease contract is between you and the owner of the house. Now, if you live in some place where, uh, like an apartment complex, uh, you may be in apartment number 110, and you have a lease agreement with the owner of that uh, apartment complex. And then your next-door neighbor may have lived in that apartment much longer than you did, and he has a lease agreement with the same uh, apartment owner, but his terms may be different from yours, and you can't make his terms your terms. You can't say, well, he's supposed to pay twice a month, I pay once a month, he's supposed to pay $900 a month, uh, I have to pay $1,100 a month, I think I like his terms better, so I'll pay his terms instead of my terms, and you can't do that. You, the contract is between the owner and the uh, leasee, or the, uh, in the case of a mortgage, the person who's buying the house. Same thing with your credit card company. You have a credit card with uh, Chase Bank, and you have your contract with Chase Bank. Your next-door neighbor has a Chase Bank account, and he probably has a pretty similar contract, but it may be a little bit different in terms of the percentage points. But you can't go and apply his, if he's got a better uh, percentage, on his on his uh, credit card than you do, you can't apply that to yours and redo the figures on on your own. So you, the contract is is a legal document that defines the relationship uh, between two parties. And so the Mosaic law was only applied to Israel, only applied to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. It does, didn't apply to the Gentiles. There's no place in the Old Testament where you can find a Gentile being held accountable for anything that is unique to the Mosaic law. If you read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, there are many places that, many places that announce judgment on all the Gentile countries, but they're never held accountable for violating the Sabbath. They're never held accountable for violating the sabbatical year. Yet Israel was held accountable for that, and the land had to have 70 years of rest. That's why when Israel was taken out during the, uh, 
during the Babylonian captivity, it lasted 70 years. Daniel read about this at the beginning of Daniel 9. He's reading in Jeremiah that this, this would last for 70 years. He gets out his uh, TI calculator, calculates all the numbers, realizes he's uh, uh, at the 68th or 69th year and starts to begin to pray that God would reveal to him how that he's going to restore Israel to the land. It's very clear. So uh, it's operating on the assumption that God means what he says. So this is all spelled out in the Mosaic Law. Well, when we get into the church age, we're not Jews. We're not part of the house of Israel, the house of Judah. We're not spiritualized, allegorized Israelites. We're not a spiritual Israel. That term is never used. The term Israel is never used of Gentiles or church-age believers. There's one passage in Galatians chapter uh, 6 where it talks, where Paul says, and give, give um, my greetings to those of, of uh, the Israelites among you. And it's not talking, it's not using the term to refer to the whole group of believers there as of Israel, but to the Jews, Jewish believers within the total body of believers there in, in Galatia. So the Mosaic law was a particular covenant between God and Israel, and it was at a temporary covenant. It had a time stamp on it, and when the cross occurred, that was the end of the Mosaic law. So the, the conclusion is that the Mosaic law was a contract between God as the party of the first part and the nation Israel as the party of the second part, and it had nothing to say to Christians uh, except by analogy, except by application. Now, as we look at uh, other problems with relation to the law, uh, we always get the, there are four basic confusions. For, the first confusion is that the law is thought to be the basis for salvation in the Old Testament. But the law was never the basis for salvation in the Old Testament. It was designed to do what? To expose the need for salvation and the inadequacy of people uh, to save themselves. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin not salvation. Uh, Romans 5.20, the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses the law, uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers. So it's it's not that it changes them or saves them. It is to protect uh, society from the, those who are uh, unruly. So as we look at uh, verse 8, Paul says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, when I heard the commandment, thou shalt not covet, sin starts to rise up within me. I start to covet. Uh, that's what he's saying. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Thou shalt not covet. Well, he started coveting. That, that covet is just another term for lust. So he's got approbation lust and power lust, and he has uh, probably sexual lust, and all kinds of other lust patterns are cropping up because he's told not to lust. It produced coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What he means by that is the same thing that he mean, that James meant in James 2.17 when he made a similar statement. 
Uh, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it's non-operational. It doesn't produce anything. Uh, faith without works isn't non-existent. It's not fulfilling its objective. It's not producing anything. Same thing as what Paul says in Romans 7, 7 8. Uh, apart from the law, sin is an operational. Sin, if sin exacerbates and exposes, or if the law exacerbates and exposes sin, then if the law is not there, sin's not going to be exposed and exacerbated. It's just going to lie sort of dormant. It's sort of like if you were uh, if you were a child uh, back in the fifties or sixties and you had chicken pox then that chickenpox virus is still in your body, but it's dormant. And then something can come along and activate that, and next thing you know, you have shingles. Or you could have Bell's palsy or some other things that are related to that chickenpox virus. It's dormant until there's something external that energizes it. Well, the law is that way towards our sin nature. The sin nature is going along in a rather dormant case, and all of a sudden the law says, well, don't do this and don't do that and quit doing that, and all of a sudden everything flares up and we're starting to commit a lot of different sins. So Paul then says, speaking of his own uh, background, he says, I was once alive uh, apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, came sin, became alive. That doesn't mean he just started to sin, but it wakes it up. It goes out of its dormancy and becomes very active. And he is talking about death here in terms of its operational impact. It, it, it renders him ineffective in terms of his spiritual life. So we read on in verse 10, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Commandment was to bring life. If you obey the law, you will have life. You'll be prosperous. Uh, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 1, the, the blessed is the man who meditates on the law day and night. And then the, the, the picture there is of a man who is very fruitful and very prosperous as a result of his uh, application of the law. So the law was to bring life, but what Paul says, it brings death because it activates my sin nature. Because, verse 11, sin taking occasion by the commandment deceives me. Sin at the core of sin is arrogance. I want to do what I want to do apart from what God wants me to do. The five I wills of Satan, at their very core, it's I'm going to do what I want to do and disobey what God wants me to do. So that sin is I will rather than God's will. So sin is then in that arrogance becomes self-deceptive and it destroys us. He's not talking about uh, going from spiritual life to spiritual death. He's talking about carnal death and being non-productive in your spiritual life. Then he concludes in Romans seven twelve that the law is good. What he's been showing all the way through these, these uh, five, six verses is that the law is good, but it exposes and activates the sin nature. Then starting in verse 13... He asks another question. He says, has then what is good, that is the law, become death to me? And again, he denies that. There's nothing negative, there's nothing harmful in the law. Certainly not. But sin 
that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. See, the law is the means God used to expose sin and to make us realize uh, that, that we were fallen and that we needed to be completely dependent upon God. So uh, what was uh, through what is good, that is through the law, it produced death so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. I could get away with a veneer of self-righteousness covering over my sin until the law started getting into all of this detail about what I could and couldn't do, and that just inflamed my sin nature, and I realized how sinful I was. Then he goes into a further explanation, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. So it's, again, good things about the law, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So he's fleshly. Now, once again, the I here, is this Paul before he saved or Paul after he saved? Well, if it's Paul before he saved, what he would be saying is that, that I am in bondage to sin. But what Paul teaches everywhere else is that we're born that way. This isn't something that comes about as it's exposed by the law. So he says, this is something that comes about as it's exposed by the law. It creates carnality because we follow the sin nature rather than reckoning that we are dead to the sin nature. And so we put ourselves back under bondage to sin. It's the picture of the slave market. The slave's been set free, but he runs back and says, put the manacles back on me. I would much rather live in slavery. It's it's Israel after they've been redeemed and freed from their slavery in Egypt and they get out in the wilderness and God's taking care of them and they have complete freedom. They say, I want to run back to the leeks and the garlics of, of, of Egypt and I want to be in slavery again because they didn't have a capacity for freedom, which means they don't have a capacity for responsibility. It's like the gen- generations growing up in the United States today. Many of them have become dependent. They don't think in terms of independence anymore, independence from government. The first thing they do when there's a problem is, what can I do? Uh, how can I get more from the government? It's a mentality of slavery. And so when they created this, this uh, dependency mentality, they're going to vote for further uh, dependency and further provision. They don't want to be independent anymore. Historically, uh, immigrants came to this country so that they could get away from government and make something of their life themselves. And we've lost sight of that. But it, it, it goes down to a spiritual issue, whether you want to be, be spiritual slaves or not. So Paul uses that same issue that and notice, nowhere through here does he talk about the Holy Spirit. And that's the point, is that all through chapter 7, Paul is simply trying to live out his spiritual life on the basis of obeying the law. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit until we get to the 8th chapter. This is the believer trying to please God on his own out of the power of the, of the flesh or through his just simple morality. And then we get the big tension in the next six verses where Paul talks about the, the conflict that occurs. He says, what I am doing, I don't understand. In other words, he's talking about doing something that is disobedient to the law, something immoral, something unethical, something that violates the law. He says, I'm doing this, and I don't understand. 
for what I want to do, which is to be obedient to the law, he says, that I don't practice. As much as I try to make myself do the right thing, all that happens as I focus on that is I want to do the wrong thing, and I end up doing the wrong thing. I end up disobeying God. And uh, he says, that I don't practice, but what I hate, that I do. I'm, I'm not doing what I want to do, and I end up, I, I get short-tempered, I'm tired, I'm lustful, I'm lazy, whatever the sins are, I'm arrogant. The more I focus on it, the more I'm sinful. That's the conflict. He can't figure out how to rise above that because it's not a focus on the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, he says, If then, and we're going to assume this is true, if I do what I will not to do. In other words, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that that it is good. I, I, I do what I don't want to do, and I realize I shouldn't do it because my conscience is telling me that this is wrong. So now I'm agreeing with the law that the law is good. In verse 17, he says, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, some people have taken this wrong and said, well, this is like a, a, a spiritual split personality. Uh, uh, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking, he uses himself as, as in, in, in the first sense, it's no longer I who do it in, in terms of my new identity and position in Christ, but it's the sin nature that's, that's got the best of me, and I've let the sin nature get the best of me, and it's my volition. For, further explanation, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. A recognition that we're all sinners. And that's so important here. We're all sinners. Even after salvation, we still have a sin nature that deceives us, that leads us into all kinds of corruption. And the only way to conquer it is not by just pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual uh, bootstraps, but by learning to walk by the Spirit on the basis of God's Word. So he says, if if, uh, I know that in me, that is in my sin nature, there's nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. I want to do the right thing. But how to perform what is good, I don't find. Now, there's not a single Christian who really wants to live the Christian life that doesn't experience this tension. I just don't know how to do it on my own. Good. You can't do it on your own. It's not that the spiritual life is hard. It's impossible. You can't do it on your own. You can only do it through dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, and on his word. And it takes time. It takes uh, a lot of tra- retraining and re-education. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it's no... Uh, no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. Verse uh, 21, if I find a law, then a, I find then a law that evil is present in me. What a great expression for total depravity. Evil still dwells in me as a believer. Now, the lordship crowd can't say this. It's, this is one reason why they say, okay, he can't be a Christian at this time because he's acting, he's saying evil dwells in him. Well, that's just like an unbeliever. Regeneration never removes the sin nature. It just removes the tyranny of the sin nature. I, I find then a law that evil is present in me, the one who wills to do good. Even as much as I want to do the right thing, there's still this something in me that's pulling me in the wrong direction. 
For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. See, he couldn't say that if he were an unbeliever. No unbeliever says, I delight in the law of God in my inner inner man. It just doesn't work. They're not regenerate. They can't do it. But, but he has this conflict which shows he must be a believer. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. This is the same conflict the, of the flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh in Galatians uh, 5, 17, 18, and a, expressing that. And it brings, when this law is warring against the law of my mind, which wants to follow the law, the Lord, it brings me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's back in verse in chapter six, where we put ourselves back under the slavery to the sin nature. And then to wrap it up, Paul just in a, in a scream of spiritual agony says, "O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I just keep trying to do it on my own, trying to do it on my own. I'm just miserable because the more I try to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. The more I don't want to do the wrong thing, I end up, uh, or the more that I don't want to do the wrong thing, I end up doing it anyway. This is horrible. How do I get out of this, this uh, uh, endless cycle of carnality? And then he begins to shift in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then as soon as we get into chapter 8, he immediately starts talking about the law of the spirit of life in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that gets us out of this downward spiral into carnality and basically operational death, not spiritual death, but we're living like we're a spiritually dead person. So he's back to the same kind of position he's talking about at the end of chapter 6 where uh, he says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, um, you have your fruit to holiness and the end is everlasting life. But the wages of sin is death. The wages, the, the result of continuing to sin, whether you're an unbeliever or whether you're a believer, is death. It's a death-like existence for the believer. You're living like you're a spiritually dead person. So we'll come back next time and get into Romans 8, 1, and begin to focus on the positive upward trajectory of the spiritual life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that you've given us everything we need to live the spiritual life. It's in your word and through walking by God, the Holy Spirit. And we've got a new nature that includes all of these uh, aspects related to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit in our life, to be filled by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to abide in Christ. And Father, this is all part of how we're able to overcome the tyranny of the sin nature. And it's grounded in what Christ has done. But if we don't focus, consistently focus, discipline ourselves in confession of sin, in studying the word, then the default position is always carnality and self-destruction through arrogance and ongoing sin. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us and strengthen us and encourage us to stay the course, to fight the battle, and to run the race well that we might glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.